Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounce on its point, wow. The fates, the gods are with the gods. The thing that got me this week was um, we're talking about Aretha Franklin and Lucy said, because you make me feel like a natural left footer. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Emma Race. I am your big sister, Lucy Race. I am your younger, younger sister, Kate Sear. <laughs> I'm just some random from the street, Nicole Hayes. And I am your birthday present, Alicia Sometimes. Oh, it is your birthday. Yay. It is. My birthday. Race. You got ripped off for my birthday because you you are actually p- um, potting with a concussion, Alicia. Sometimes I know. I don't think I can play a game of AFL this week for sure. Oh. Um, there is also somebody else who's in the house, given it's Emma's birthday, and she's got a little surprise fl- le- uh, lined up, and that is the ghost of Marilyn Monroe, who wanted to. Oh my God! Do something for your birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> To you. <laughs> Happy birthday. Oh, this cake. To Happy birthday, this is ABC sanctioned cake. Mrs. President. <laughs> Happy birthday to Blushing in my Oval Office. Thank you for that. You're so gorgeous. Okay, let's quit the birthday talk and let's move on to football because there has been so much to talk about this week. Just to put it out there, none of us were consulted by the AFL. No. (laughs) But a lot of other people were. That's that's our official story anyway. But Mm. when we say consulted, sat and watched a presentation. Mm. Not actually gave, you know, I think you call it briefing. Answers, briefing. Yeah, it was they watched briefing. a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Yeah. is what they did. <laughs> yeah, that would have yeah. been fun. Yeah. Anyway, um, have we got a delicious commentary watch to kick it off? Kate well, Seal? we do. I mean, there's always. I've got a long list that I accumulate from week to week. I wanted to just talk about a commentary trend that I've been observing in recent weeks, which is this tendency to give agency to the ball itself, to give the ball some <laughs> sort of <laughs> super magical powers. The Quidditch. But it the... does, though. But well, anyway, I want to hear your well, it, take. It does. And it, it clearly does because the commentators oh, the are telling us. So a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I mean, Tom Mitchell for Hawthorne has been having a wonderful season and a number of huge possession games. And a couple of weeks ago, I heard a commentator say, and I quote here, that the ball just follows Tom Mitchell. Mm. It's, it's not his. It's not his fault. No, it's not. <laughs> golden snitch. It's the golden snitch. And so then it occurred to me that maybe Mitchell is actually, literally, a ball magnet because oh, because, makes sense. because there are a number of people who are playing. Who will are the also, ball win the Brownlow? Well, I mean, at this rate, I think it will. Gets a lot of touches. <laughs> then um, on the weekend, uh, last weekend, I heard a commentator say that a particular player was wanting the ball to talk for him. Yeah. Which made me think of Wilson, of course, from um, Castaway. Was it talk with a Q, though? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point, actually. That would make much more sense. Um, And... You know how often the commentators also say something like the handball didn't find anybody or the the yeah. ball has to find someone here? Yeah. And I, I find this quite intriguing that somehow it's no longer the players who are in control of what's happening on the field in all of these respects, but, but it's the ball itself. It's anthropomorphism and it's yes. also... Nice g- word. Yeah, but it's also that you make your verbs active. So you need to make interesting verbs and you humanise the ball. And yeah. I think this is all perfectly normal. I wish it had a face. I don't know about inventing <laughs> like verbs, Wilson. though. No, like, 
I'm not a fan of inventing. I love inventing. Like it's Nicole hazing it in today. (laughs) Oh well, that's different. Can I Mm. say that I've noticed one other too? Because there's a lot of controversies around the Carlton. Um, outfit and the grey uniform and apparently they are contractually obliged to wear it again next season but are keen to get out of it. But I just wanted literally to get out of the uniform and to get out of that contract. But in a Carlton game the other day, I heard one of the commentators say that a player had picked one of the Carlton players' pocket. And at first I was quite confused mm. and then I realised that we solved the great mystery yeah. of what those little pockets, the fockets, the fockets. Mm. on mm. the back of four. Fake pockets. I mean, that's where he's, that's where evidently mm. the players mm. are popping the ball. That mm. really is an ugly strip, isn't it? But have we, did we see the news that Hawthorne's not going to have any mm. other of the alternate strips except the Indigenous round one, which I think is a lovely gesture. I like that. What about how you've got, now got a collector's item because you wear the Power I've Rangers. the Power Rangers <laughs> one. Yeah. It's hilarious. Out and proud. How much did that cost you, Nicole? Two, uh, nine, it was a two ninety-nine on special? I, he didn't keep the receipt. <laughs> I like the that pink is why one. I still have it. I love the pink I one. I love the pink one, actually, the Neapolitan. The, yeah. the grey Carlton one has been very confronting for me because if I'd had my way, I would have worn a grey male wedding dress to my wedding. I love grey. Wow. Like, mm. it's my favourite colour, which you. makes me but sound like... you were like a virgin and you couldn't. Is that why? <laughs> my virginity was off-white. <laughs> Stucco, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, beige. Maybe a bit beige. You'd gotten to first base, so you were wearing cream. Exactly. It was like a dirty white. It was a dirty white. I'm a fan of the eggshell. Anyway, carry on. What do you want to say, Lucy? Well, I I thought given that we're nearly at finals, we should bring back Omen Watch. Oh, yes. And someone who always provides the best omens is Josh Kay on Twitter. And I love this this week. He said it somehow seems fitting that the 22 players from Melbourne – um, who broke the finals drought, had played 1964 games between them. <laughs> How good is that? That is very you look, you look for things everywhere. I know. We oh, also good. We got a message this week from Snoop Doug 131, <laughs> which is a great oh, name, saying that there was some great Omen Watch numbers on the Melbourne Footy Club website as well if anyone wanted to play along at oh. home. So thanks for the heads up on that as well. Uh, also, can I just say, I tweeted um, from our uh, account the other day to note that we've been, this is the third season we've been doing this pod. In the first season, an underdog won, which were, of course, the Bulldogs in 2016. Then last year, after almost four decades, Richmond won. I think we Uh-oh. are the lucky charm. And so this year, I mean, is it the year of the demon? Ooh. Well, it's but, pretty much anyone other than Tyres are the oh. underdogs, really. In <laughs> the is it ominous that I have three magpies that knock on my door Every single morning, I should take video of this. They ask for food and I hand feed them, and they're flying on that's, my arm. Oh. That's no way to describe Steve and the boys. <laughs> <laughs> One's called Arlo. <laughs> that's right. No, they're coming to my door. They've been in my house. Well, uh, that creeps me out. I'm not a big bird fan. I love birds. Oh, a bird in the poor, house. Oh. Is, that's your biggest fear, isn't it? I hate a, a bird, bird in, in the house. house. Yep, I yeah. nearly called the police once because I had a bird in the house. But <laughs> did you have two in the bush? <laughs> <laughs> Here all week, try the veal. Um, Vegan veal. Let's also just also remember that Bucks has grown his beard back. That's what I mean. There are are signs. And I think you're right, Alicia. I think there's some. Or are the magpies mocking me? Mm, I don't know. Can I just, before we move on, my biggest fear, yours is a bird in the house. My biggest fear, (laughs) just because on my birthday, I feel like, you know, I. We just look at my you. life. No, just look at my life and think, where am I at with everything? Just checking in. This is my only, this is my biggest fear, dying in a food court. Oh. Okay. Oh. Okay. That, I, can, I can feel Kate, that. what's yours? Your birds? I don't know if my biggest fear, I have the three, my three most um, hated jobs. I'll tell you what they are in order. I, rev- I revise, I, every year I kind of check in to see whether I'm still, so in, the, in re- reverse order, the third one is working in an abattoir because I'm vegetarian. The second one is anything in sales. And then the, the first, <laughs> sorry to people who work in sales. Inbound or me, outbound calls? Any, any. Um, and the first, I think the worst job, which is a great fear of mine, would be to be a soccer goalkeeper at the highest level. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Nicole? <laughs> I love how Emma goes. So much yeah, thought. Yeah, because she's heard this like twelve times from me. <laughs> I, 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 you put so much thought into that. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, no, anything to do with me being being on stage, which is kind of hilarious. Oh, since we did that. You're such a shock. Yeah. No, no, because I am absolutely certain that there will be the, the wardrobe malfunction, or you know, I think it's all right if I've got my girls with me with my sisters. But Your girls? Um, yeah, my, my team. I find that shocking. What about you, Alicia? I am petrified of touching my knees. 
of anyone touching my knees or talking about my knees. The minute I think about it, and I'm doing it now, (laughs) I just get feel really weak. Like something's wrong. That there's yeah. So that's mine. Knees. Don't talk about knees. What about Dicky knee? (laughs) Can you watch her hair Saturday? (laughs) She's done a knee. Hello, 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 Daryl. Mr. Summers, Mr. Summers. Okay, we've jumped the shark again. Ladies, come on. Chris Fagan would not like this. (laughs) Okay, let's bring it back in. The Melbourne boys were criticised this week, Lucy, for celebrating too much. They were. And, again, it's Chris Judd. I feel like, sorry, Chris, it's not that that I have anything against you personally, but just against some of the things you've been saying. Mm. Um, He said on Footy Classified that... He thought Melbourne was too good a team to celebrate this hard just for making the finals. And then he went on to say, I know it's a human reaction to celebrate like this, but to have final success, you need to have a lot of non-human (laughs) behaviours. Yes, you do. So he thought they celebrated too hard. Jordan Lewis responded by saying the emotion was brilliant. And he also said, and I agree with him here, that players get criticised for not showing emotion and then they get criticised for showing too much emotion. Mm. So we've seen that if players are nice and shake hands at the end of the game, that that gets criticised. Um, and then if, and if they, they celebrate don't. too much, yeah. then that's <laughs> not good. Um, I don't... I, if you were writing the handbook, it would be a bit hard. But I was wondering, last week Emma went with something about having a hypermeter. Mm. I'm wondering whether we could have a celebrate-o-meter. Mm. Mm. Um, because, you know, if you think about the teams that have done well the last two years, they've actually been the ones that have embraced the human. Absolutely. And the ones that tried to be non-human with that robotic stance and it does feel like do Chris, so well. It's been Adelaide a little Crows. while since Chris Judd has had final success. So maybe things have changed Ooh. a little bit. Is that a, is that a dig? I, I'm being mm. legit. Like also maybe he was doing it wrong. Well, hello. That's mm. an option. You, I mean, he's a wonderful, he was a wonderful player. A wonderful player. And he was a premiership captain. Yeah. but Quite a while ago. You know. Mm. Things didn't go so well after that. For a lot of people in that team, though, like they won't have individual success that, you know, we're seeing people starting to retire. If you don't get a chance to celebrate then, when do you get a chance no. to celebrate? Oh, you know? On your birthday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not even a birthday is as good as that. Like no, winning, a, you know, getting into the finals. Speaking well, about the Schwartz, uh, the Melbourne celebration, did anyone see the video of David Schwartz and his son watching? Yeah, it's adorable. It's adorable. It adorable. I encourage you all yes. to have a look. We, I think we retweeted it. Just to put it in perspective, I think Melbourne are justified in celebrating because there's been a lot of talk about it's 12 years since they've played finals. So take your mind back to 2006. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, really... <laughs> get a sense of how much time has passed. But in 2006, here are some things that had just happened. So High School Musical had just burst onto the scene. We didn't know what the story of how the story of Troy and Gabriella was going to end up. Oh, I, I We're still only don't, at High School Musical 1. I still don't know how. Well, oh, how do I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. This is, oh it's important God. stuff. Um, Facebook had only just opened itself up to the public. The first tweet had been sent that year. Wow. And if you want to think about politics, back in Australia, we still got Prime Ministers the old-fashioned way. <laughs> so there was no need for the Twitter account that says the Australian Prime Minister is now dot, dot, dot. Time to change your batteries and, in your um, smoke alarm. Donald Trump had a job. He was hosting season five of The oh. Apprentice. Oh. So that's how long it is since oh. Melbourne's played finals. Wow. That feels like a whole other lifetime, It really it? does. It really totally. does. Um, I was looking at um, a lot of – Richmond have obviously made finals and they're having a meeting with their um, – because they've got 100,000 fans, supporters, what they're talking about. Members. Members. Sorry, Members. that's the word I was looking for. And so they, they have to have a crisis meeting about how everyone's going to get ticketed. And I know I'm not the expert in ticketing issues on the oh, Outer Sanctum. Felicity. That's Felicity. We'll get her in off the bench yeah. for some, you know, good hard ticketing mm. issues. But um, I was looking at the ladder in comparison to the the ratings of um, the most uh, the teams with the most members, and it's unbelievable because in the top eight there are six teams who are the highest. Um, fulfilled uh, members wow. um, teams. So uh, there is currently of all the teams that can that are playing finals. There's more than half a million members of wow. all of those clubs. Mm. So um, mm. the top six. Um, so Richmond, Hawthorne, West Coast, Collingwood, Geelong, Sydney have the highest numbers, and then Melbourne and GWS fall outside of the top um, the top six. Could people sign up even. to share a seat? Oh, that's a good idea. I like hate sit on someone's knee. Seat. When you got like half a bum cheek, yeah. I hate that. No, but you did no. the lap thing. I'd rather stand. Yeah. If they're small. It could be a uh, OH&S 
OH&S issue. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have a fire. <laughs> Thanks, Sean Connery. What's the capacity of the G? Do we know? What is the capacity of the G? Does anyone know? hundred. It is exactly hundred because mm-hmm. yeah. we used to be able to get more before people they did the, the older Bay 13. Before they did the Southern Stand, it used to. Remember, there was like a hundred and twenty something yes. thousand yeah. that you could I get there. At Collingwood Haw- Carlton, maybe. Yeah, but I feel like one of the Hawthorne games had that. One of the Hawthorne Grand Finals too. One person who won't be playing finals is Brendan Goddard. Mm. I know. Um, he's announced his uh, last game this weekend after being told he's no longer wanted at the club. They won't offer him a new deal. This is Essendon, of course. And he said, over the last few weeks, I've had a very open discussions with the coach about my playing future and I fully respect the club's playing decision. He's played 200 games for St Kilda, joining Essendon in 2003 racking up 333 appearances. That's an Mm -hmm. ominous sign. Um, And he'll have to find another club. And uh, just also on that, Jared Waite has Mm -hmm. made a definite call on what his plans are from North Melbourne and deciding he's going to retire at the end of the season. So That's a bit more voluntary than the Goddard situation, though. He's not so happy, is he? No, I think the pretzels will all be really nervous today. Okay, it is literally a million degrees in the studio right now. So if we don't hurry up, these cakes that you gave me are already starting to perspire more than Nicole Hayes. We all feel really, I mean, on the celebration of my 43rd birthday, I do feel menopausal, but I think it might be the temperature in this reptile um, cage. cage. Okay, so Lucy Race, you saw something that uh, caught your eye this week. I did, and it's one. It's a case of you know sometimes when you're a massive fan that sometimes that's the way to think critically about something. So this was a story about um, making competitive sport compulsory in state secondary schools, and we're all massive sport fans, and we you know fans of competitive sport. I don't want to get into a policy debate, but what I want to ask is: there's something that we get from competitive sport that you can't get. From something else. Um, we know that and we talk about it all the time about the benefits of playing sports. So um, benefits for health, for developing skills like teamwork, discipline, resilience, um, the benefits for mental health. But does it have to be competitive to get those benefits? Um, and the reason I'm kind of asking about it is I've got, you know, three kids and two who love competitive sport and one who that would be their greatest nightmare. So I started thinking about um, the things outside of sport, like performance and art. And um, I came across Robin Ewing's, Professor Robin Ewing from Sydney University, the Australian Education Review paper from 2010. And she looked at the arts in Australian education. Her research shows that being part of music, drama or performance is also highly beneficial to people. And as well as having many of the same benefits of sport, participation in a well-thought-out arts program can also develop empathy and challenge stereotypical assumptions. So it just made me think... Should we be looking for broader offerings that, you know, while you have competitive sport available, that you also have drama or theatre sports or dance or, and I just wanted to see what you guys thought about that. Mm. Alicia, a poetry slam, is a poetry slam dunk just as good as a basketball (laughs) slam dunk? I think it can be when you're in the trenches, a poetry slam can be quite competitive and interesting and people shout and they've got feelings and they've got a side to go for. I think what you're saying, Lucy, is just absolutely essential that the arts, uh, and and we're we're really lucky here in Australia, especially Melbourne, that it is respected, but the arts should just be an amazing outlet for Mm. um, your your passions and your your sportsmanship. And I always think that as soon as you make something compulsory... You take the joy out of it, and mm. you know I I've noticed um it's just it's sort of a thing as a writer to, if it's a great thing if you can get a book on a school curriculum one of your books but if you write for young people so that's great you sell more books and you know teachers and librarians and everybody um, embraces it and it, it can be a real win but there's a, the other side of that is your book becomes work yeah it mm. becomes homework mm. and it becomes so it often can backfire and I do think especially with young you know, with teenage girls, that they drop out of sport at sort of that mid-teens age, that forcing them to compete or be involved in a sport they're not interested in will absolutely mean that where they might return in their 20s, that's gone. It ruins all love. Yeah, mm. I think there, there's a bit of a trend, I think, amongst um, PE teachers and, and PE educators now thinking about how to make 
children, lifelong um, partakers in mm. exercise. So how do you actually, you know, get people to see the benefits of exercise, whether that's going for a run by yourself? And I don't know that it necessarily needs to be about um, compulsory, oh, not compulsory, but competitive sport. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, Agreed. yeah. I think chess club and tournament of minds and debating, mm. um, which also kind of aren't part of the arts necessarily. Mm. They all kind of have that team. Like this is probably the greatest team I've ever been a part of. Mm. I mean, my Nana Wadding netball team was, was pretty, pretty special. Good, yeah. But I'm just saying, here if you need Kate. <laughs> here if you need Trace. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it depends as well, as you say, Lucy, on why it is that competitive sport would be emphasised. I mean, I don't know enough. I haven't read what the literature mm. says. But um, I'm not sure why it is that there's a view that something that has a competitive element is so essential. I can see how it would be formative of character, learning how to lose as well and learning how to win and learning how to be Mm. gracious and so on. Mm. I can see why that's important, but that stuff also has its downsides too if it's not managed properly or Mm. um, if it's overemphasized. And so... And there no, is guess, that, yeah, I'm that sure. potential for public humiliation. If you're really mm. not very capable um, and, you know, let's be honest, a lot of sport isn't handled well in schools anyway in terms of sportsmanship and all of these qualities that they're supposed to uphold. So until they can get better at doing that, um, I, you know, I think it's really problematic. Speaking of sportsmanship, Alicia, I'm going to come to you with um, something that you saw at the Q Clash. I know. How exciting was that game, Brisbane and Gold Coast? But... I love that um, it's been blamed on garlic. (laughs) I'm just going to put it in context for that. So the AFL greats uh, uh, slam Brisbane captain Dane Zorko after Took Miller incident. Uh, In similar circumstances to what happened after the final siren in round five, Brisbane captain Zorko was involved in another controversial exchange with Gold Coast uh, star Miller, after refusing to shake Miller's hand after being completely shut down earlier in the year, Zorko berated the young son after the Lions held on to uh, win boy by four points. So everyone's saying it's terrible leadership, but the garlic prawns, Ben Dixon, that's right, <laughs> said, was it garlic prawns that sparked this incident? I don't know. But it just goes to show, is it about leadership? It was a very strange exchange watching it at home. I wondered what it was all about. What did you guys well, think? I don't understand the garlic prawns. From the previous, they said it was bad breath. You've got terrible yes. breath or oh, something like yes. that okay. was said, I think. Yeah. that Was was that in the previous Yeah, that was in the previous meeting? one. So, yeah. it, again, oh it, it shows that there's a lot of bad blood and mm. that it's spilled onto this game. A lot of bad breath, <laughs> a a lot lot of of bad bad breath. breath between them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone should have been breathalyzed. But it, it's an aggressive thing not to shake someone's hand and um, also to get it in someone's grill as well. So mm. what would fun? There's so many barbecue thing themes around this cute barbecue clash. Barbecue clash. <laughs> Getting in people's grill with your prawns <laughs> and everything. Tongue. What's funny is um, the theatre of football because the, yeah. the shaking of hands, I get, like that's a traditional thing. It's almost like it is in cricket or in um, uh, soccer. They do. They make quite a show of shaking hands, don't they, at the end when they line past each other and stuff like that. And but, say G-G, 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 yeah. G-G, But I found it really interesting that there was – that the that the handshake can be so loaded when people yeah. go so hard at each other physically, and we also saw during that game or before that game that um, Nick Robertson from um, the Lions had been trash talking a yeah. little bit, been mm. trash talking their Queensland um, co-tenants, and um, Chris Fagan was really strong on that after the game. The coach of the Lions, and he came out and he said that the um, I don't know if you guys heard his presser; it was fantastic. He kind of said, um, "Look, we won." We got the four points, which is great, but it really the shine was taken off off it because of what had happened with Nick Robertson. Now, I don't necessarily agree with what Chris Fagan was saying, but I like that he's trying to set a culture and he's trying to set an agenda. And I did feel like, you know, he was like a um, school teacher that you really respect getting cross with someone and yeah, saying, sure. we had a great day at the excursion, mm. but you shoplifted and therefore it's ruined for everybody. <laughs> but I just sure, I thought... I or maybe just mooned a car or something. It's so interesting when they're... When the handshake is weighted mm. and the trash talking is weighted, but actually, what we're asking them to do is to go out and be really, really physical and put their head over the ball with each other. It feels like such a different language to the language that is used in real life. Hence, its power. 
Yeah, right. And is that enhanced. how it works? It's enhanced as well. Yeah, I think so. I think that is the point is, it you know, in the same way that you shake with your right hand so that you don't go for your sword. Well, that was the tradition of why we shake with our right hands in the Western world, you know, because you, you're traditionally right-handed and the sword, it meant you couldn't reach for I it. I thought so it, was it was to do with wiping your bottom, but that's anyway. other cultures. Uh, mm. But, yeah, no, that's where that one of those, well, it's a gesture of peace for that purpose. Yeah, but it's interesting yeah. that, you know, if you shake hands and you're too jovial, You'll mm. also get in trouble. Mm. That's right. You've got to take so it seriously. You need to, there are a lot of rules like around it. Fairly restricted way that we like people to shake hands. But what I'd say about that is that Chris Fagan <laughs> is setting a tone and an agenda that he's being very clear about. Mm. I yeah. feel that if yeah. you played for him or played under him, that you wouldn't have any. There'd be no grey. There'd be no grey away areas. kit area. <laughs> like there would just be, there would you know, be grey wedding expects. dress. No, exactly. He, he was on SEN today, this morning, just before we came in. And uh, he was saying that, you know, that was just a moment and, and, you know, Nick Robbins wouldn't do that again now if he had an opportunity to go back. That's just, it's so out of character and, but that there's a, you know, there's a there's an aspect of club that you've got to represent. He's a great clubman and that wasn't a great moment mm. and he'd regret it. if he, you, you know. have to say, don't you think looking at Brisbane now with having had Chris Fagan for a mm. season, you just think World that apart. things are really looking good for them. And it's interesting because I hated that he left Hawthorne, mm. but I really like that he's a senior coach so we get to hear from him because we never really got to hear from yeah. him before and I really enjoy hearing his take on the game. So where Chris Fagan totally nailed the presser, our old, dear old friend Ross Lyon kind of had a really interesting presser <laughs> after their huge loss. It was pretty awkward, wasn't it? He has been copping a lot of flack all season, um, really since he came to Frio. And after the 133-point flogging by the Cats, things sort of came to a head. Um, the mainstream media and social media went off. And I guess, you know, I imagine the um, tension in the room at the after the game wasn't um, was pretty high. But he was asked by one of the journalists about the status of the club's rebuild. And um, his response was, I don't know how you want me to answer that. Because I've just come out of an AFL game and we've had a really bad loss, do you think it changes on a week-to-week treadmill or you look at the, all the threads? And then he talked about some injuries and some positives of the team. Then I'm going to get Kate to sure. help me out here if you can be the reporter. Um, Lion continues, do you look around and see it's been done in two years anywhere? Is that a yes or a no? Well, other teams have. Done it in two years? Not the overall. How long? A few years. What's a few? Three or four. Who's done it in three? I can't think off the top of my head. That's okay. It's probably inappropriate for you to be able to answer that question too. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Clark and Dor. How was the performance, by the way? Really good. And I told you, see, art is great. (laughs) Um, But do you know what I think is the most intriguing and, like, significant thing about that is that you are able to hear the questions from the reporter because in the history of football, (laughs) they have never managed to get the microphone no. to the reporters in press conferences. So hilarious. awesome. Well done. It, so in the, but in the understatement of the week, Luke Darcy said Ross Lyon was coming off a bit arrogant and could do better. And, you know, there's a, a whole lot of conversation about whether um, Mr. Lyon's going to have a job, but uh, also rumours that it'll cost $2 million to pay him out should oh, they get rid God. of him. Um, but in that great... Um, tradition of politics, Steve Rossich, the CEO, said that Lion is safe, that he's backing him all the way, um, and now there are cries for both their heads. So oh a la our Prime Ministership right now, watch this space. I was going to say, didn't Peter scary. Dutton say on yep. Monday that he supported Malcolm Turnbull and then there was a lib spill yesterday? I felt like um, I felt like that in that Ross Lyon, he easily could have done, I know you are, but what am I? And then, <laughs> well, whoever smelled it, dealt it. <laughs> Who's on first? <laughs> What's on second? I know. I feel like he was he's moments away from that. Brain. If they lose again by more than a hundred points, I think he's gonna. I think you're gonna have to I strap yourself. Someone to ask him who's on first. <laughs> strap yourselves in. He's got nothing to. He's got nothing to you know work towards other than just having a ridiculous presser that's going to mean absolutely nothing. Um, okay, so Friday night kicked off and. Oh, there was just some stuff that happened in Parliament that would have just been, for so many people in this country, would have been really hard to hear, um, us included, I suppose. <laughs> so um, football took it on and football said, we're going to respond to this. And what I loved, what I really loved about this is the debate that football shouldn't be political mm. and the and it allowed itself just to jump right in and say football is political and here's our statement, Kate. 
Yeah, so, um, and obviously, Em, you're talking about Basha Huli and Adam Saad, who decided to, they were the ones who decided to take it on, as you said. Uh, I was I was really upset about the fallout from this, actually. I, I was so frustrated by some of the discourse that I saw unfold over the weekend, and so I wanted to talk about it. There were lots of things that were said by um, a number of people across mainstream media and social media, but one thing that really caught my eye was some comments by Melbourne radio personality Tom Elliott, who um, is the son of John, El- John Elliott, as many people would know. He called it political correctness. Um, he said it was virtue signalling by Huli and Saad. And he claimed, and I quote here, that it's not what people go to the football for. They just want their team to win. That's what it should all be about. And many others complained that Huli and Saad were bringing politics into sport, which is a phrase that always really gets um, on my nerves. And it's worth noting that there were actually two other games on the weekend that involved quite overt political statements, much more overt, actually. One was the White Ribbon Cup that was played between Sydney and GWS, and that cup focuses on raising awareness uh, about violence against women. And the other was the Police Cup, which was played by um, between St Kilda and Hawthorne, and that, that game is in memory of two Victorian police officers, Gary Silk and Rodney Miller, who were killed in the line of duty 20 years ago this month. And more broadly over time, that game has become about acknowledging the courage and sacrifice of the police. And neither of those games received anywhere near the same level of vitriol that had been directed at Huli and Saad. There was actually almost no... Um, commentary on social media or mainstream media. And yet both of those um, games were unmistakably political moments. And I want to talk about why why I think that is and what makes something political. So um, almost 50 years ago, a feminist wrote a famous essay, Carol Hanish, wrote a famous essay called The Personal is Political, which is a phrase that most people will have heard by now. Um, and in, she, in that essay, she made this quite famous point that personal problems are political problems. There are no personal solutions at this time. There is only collective action for a collective solution. And many scholars have argued since then that everything, every aspect of life is political. So the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the food that we eat, and that's because all of the actions we take have political effects, even if we don't think of them as sort of consciously or deliberately political choices. So, for example, if I buy some cheap clothes that are made in a sweatshop somewhere, uh, another part of the world, I am enabling the continued exploitation of people, whether I mean to or not, and whether I know it or not. The point is that my actions have political consequences, including the continued oppression of some people. And As well as that, I think every aspect of our everyday lives is shaped by political decisions made by governments. So if you think about when you decide to go to the footy on the weekend, whether I can afford to access public transport, whether I can access public transport from where I live, depends in part on whether the government has done things like chosen to invest in public transport in my community, whether they think there are votes in it for them, uh, whether I live in a poor area that's part of their traditional constituency or one that they think they can ignore and so on. There are ripple effects all the time in every aspect of our lives. And so Huli and Saad were, were simply trying to draw attention to some of those politics that already existed and were impacting upon them and impacting upon them, of course, as proud Muslim men. So you mentioned this at the start, M. that what they were protesting about, uh, what they were upset about, were, were some comments that had been made by Senator Fraser Anning in his first speech in the Australian Parliament where he derogated people of Muslim faith. And he said, and it's worth quoting some of the things he said here, um, that Muslims, there is of Muslims, he said, there is no stronger retrograde force that exists in the world. He said that Muslims have consistently shown themselves to be unable to integrate and assimilate into Australian society. And he claimed, and I quote, that while all Muslims are not terrorists, certainly all terrorists these days are Muslims and that they should no longer be allowed into our country. So extremely strong language. And over the weekend, I saw people vigorously debating on social media. I got involved myself because I really felt passionate about this. People debating whether it was right for Julian Saad to respond to those remarks and whether the kind of action they were taking was, say, any different from the the kind of action that Hawthorne and St Kilda took in the Police Cup on Saturday night. 
And those debates always miss a fundamental point, which is the one that I want to make today, and that is that claiming that one action is political and that another one is not, or that one form of action is politically acceptable while another one is not, is itself a form of politics. We've said this on this program before, but it is worth reminding people of that. And the irony, the great irony about this too, is that um, you know people who might try to claim on the one hand that support for the police in the police cup isn't a political statement at all, are often the same people who at the same time would say that Colin Kaepernick shouldn't be allowed to take a knee in the NFL in protest against the police because that would be political. In other words, that supporting the police is not Not political, political. (laughs) but criticising them is political. And the point is that if you consider yourself to be the arbiter of what's political and what's not, if you think you get to decide what belongs on a sporting field and what doesn't, then at the very least you must acknowledge that you yourself are engaging in a form of politics. And... Um, and that, I think, is the key point. Um, I just want to say a couple of other things. <laughs> and I warned you guys that I had a big rant about this today, but I feel, I feel very frustrated by it. Um, the other thing is that Tom Elliott and some others purport to speak about what we, the people, want when we go to the footy or what we are prepared to tolerate. And that's also political, of course. So unless Tom Elliott has conducted some kind of empirical research with all of the people who go to the footy, he should be very careful, I think, about making claims about what we apparently want. And that's, I think, especially so when you're speaking from a position of relative privilege. If you have a megaphone in the mainstream media and are in the position to comment on these things, I think you need to take care, especially when you're directing your comments or your claims towards a traditionally marginalised group who don't often have those high-profile media roles and can't speak back. Um And where what you say would have the effect of silencing those marginalised people. We also need to acknowledge that footballers are people. They're not robots. And we've said this on the show before. Ben Brown um, (laughs) made that point really well a few months ago when we spoke to him. And they don't play sport in some fictitious bubble of unreality that exists outside of the real world. They don't wake up, put on their boots, go to work, and then suddenly be freed from the relentless political commentary that... Let, let, let us remind ourselves, would tell these people, Julian Saad, that they are not Australian and that they do not deserve to be here. They can't step onto the field and magically extract themselves from their social situation for a couple of hours each week, even if they wanted to. And even if you, as somebody going to the game, might want yourself to be kind of taken away, spirited away somewhere else, you have to accept that not everybody else is capable of that and they don't need to to engage in that. And I find it so strange that we we celebrate when footballers return to the field after some kind of adversity, like if a child has died or a relative or a friend. But people are highly selective in which kinds of adversity we're prepared to acknowledge and whose humanity they will recognise because those men were playing in circumstances of adversity. Let's let's be clear. So if I, I want to end by returning to Tom Elliott's comments and say... That Yes, I do go to the football, hopefully, to see my team win. But first and foremost, I want everybody who is on my team to feel that they belong in this country. So let's start there. And can I just add that just for context here, this demonstration that people are so objecting to was literally two people, was Basha Hooley and Adam Saad standing next to their captains. A A coin was tossed. Everybody shook hands and the game went on. Like this is what we're talking about, about four seconds yeah. of, of a moment to just recognise what's been happening during the week. And the idea that this is worthy of the kind of vitriol and the ranting that took place for days afterwards is extraordinary and in itself clearly racist in terms of its it did, content. It reminded me of the fictitious dancing spear moment that was so dangerous <laughs> for the players, for the, uh, for the people watching on. It also um, it came back to me... You know, in the last 24 hours when we've heard so much vitriol about um, Waleed potentially going to AFL House to be presented to and how the discourse on that became about um, how he was singled out. There's been 50 mm. members of the media, pro- mm. probably more, mm. um, who've, been gone, who've gone to the AFL and who've been presented to. And why was he singled out in that article? And I... Yeah, and 
I want to keep an open mind, but it's not okay. Mm. It's not okay that we feel that we can point and make this, um, say these people are other, that they're not of us. You know, we talk so much about wanting to hear from the fans and the fans have a voice. There is no greater fan of mm. this game than Waleed. Mm. Seriously. He, well, maybe well, you. Me. <laughs> maybe you, Katia. <laughs> he loves this game yeah. just as He's much as we mascot. do. He's yeah, also been... a media broadcaster who talks about <clears throat> sport. I mean, I know. you know, just like the other media Entirely people that were briefed. But the yeah. thing that got to me was seeing what it meant to other people of the Muslim faith who follow football. Kate? Yeah, and one of those is um, Rana Hussein, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator at the Richmond Football Club. Um, I saw Rana tweeting about how special it was to her and we decided we'd have a chat with her about it. So thanks for joining us, Rana. It's a pleasure to have you on the Outer Sanctum again. Um, Over the weekend, as the Julian Saad story unfolded, I saw a tweet that you had sent out where you said that this moment meant so much to me as a footy fan. Tell us... What, what it felt like and, and why it meant so much to you? Uh, I guess it just... I, I've come to the footy all these years and, you know, loved it like everybody else. And it just felt like a moment where my footy community, this community that I see every weekend, backed me and my community. Like, it just felt like these two things came together and uh, in a really positive way, Um it just felt like, I, I think for me, it was sort of like highlighting the fact that, look, we've got Muslims who play this game. Why wouldn't we say, you know what, we're just going to support our players and the people who invest in this game, which are who Muslims are part of that community. Um, it's sort of, it, and it's actually, I'm finding it hard to articulate because it's just such a deeply emotional thing, which... Um, some people say there's no place for that in football, but I think football is deeply emotional in general. Um, and it just felt like one of those things where I felt like the football community stood with us in a moment that was quite difficult. I saw Adam Saad tweet a big thanks to, to both Essendon and Richmond for giving him and Basha the opportunity. What was mm. the mood like at the club in the lead-up to the game and once we knew that Basha had decided to to uh to t- make this little stand uh i think everybody the club well the club was just a flurry of excitement in general because it was game day yes um but i think everybody at the club was kind of just like yeah of course and the fact that it was basher it was one of our players a premiership player it was sort of just like yeah we would get behind him why wouldn't we do this um and it's merely just, it was merely just to say, you know what, he's hes one of us too and we're with him as well, with his community. And I think I think Basher himself initially felt a bit unsure because he doesn't love the limelight. He's one of those guys that just would rather go, oh, you know what, it's fine. But I think then he thought about it and went, you know what, this is actually more than just me. There's a whole community out there who will take sucker from this that you know, we're all in this together. And I think having, you know, there was talk around it just being Basher and Adam going out to toss the coin. But I think having their captains go with them, it was was that show of solidarity, which is what I loved, that Mm -hmm. it wasn't just about them and singling them out. It was about saying, we're actually all in this together. And it kind of doesn't matter where you come from. We all actually share this game. Um, And so if you're in, you know, we're going to have you back. Rana, it's Emma here. Um, I saw Shelley Ware um, contact you and you were both sharing the moment saying how important it is for you to, um, how it feels for both of you when you see people that are from your cultures um, recognised or stepping up in those moments. It's Mm. something that I thought was extraordinary is that we can see these players, but for them in that moment to step up and to take it on, it really put the conversation front and square, are you as nervous as you are thrilled when that thing yeah. happens? Yeah, when the, when the club um, approached me and said, look, we're thinking of doing this, what do you think? My eyes welled up because I just was like, this is amazing um, and thank you so much. But then... It then it like it, and then I thought, oh God, what if there's booze? And and seeing some of the responses throughout the day come through, 
I, I was really nervous and I was desperate to just watch it and have it have it happen and then be over because I was so scared that, you know, they might actually get food and, and that wouldn't that be terrible. Um, and I think I, and to what Shelley was talking about, like you do, it is an act of bravery um, to go out and do that for those guys because you are very vulnerable. You are putting your identity front and centre and saying, this is who I am and regardless of the reaction I'm about to get, I'm doing this. Um and that is scary, and it's very—it's a very vulnerable place to be in. Um, I'm just—I should have had faith because there weren't any boos, um, and there were a lot of claps, and it was generally well received. Um, I just think the beat up before it was a little bit, <laughs> a little bit worrying. We love having Rana Hussein's voice on this podcast. And the other day when she was in, she sat in with you, Nicole, to do um, another inclusion uh, and diversity interview. <laughs> yeah, basically it's an excuse to hang with her because she's awesome. But um, we spoke to Ashley Brown and Adam McNichol about a new book that they're involved in, People of the Boot, The Triumphs and Tragedy of Australian Jews in Sport. Uh, Ashley co-edited it with Dash Lawrence. It was a great chat. I hope you enjoy it. It's lovely to meet you both, Ashley and Adam. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the book and you know how you came to the project? Well, the story having been uh, sort of sports writer for a long time and, and obviously part of the Jewish community, and our community has always been lauded for contributions it's made to to the arts and to sciences and to business and to philanthropy. And here's me thinking, you know, we've got a bit of a sporting story to tell as well, but it doesn't seem to be sort of that, all that recognised. So I thought... There's enough stories out there, enough of a contribution that our community's made over a long period to sort of get them down in a book. So that was sort of the genesis that I was approached by a guy called Dash Lawrence, who's a, an academic with a strong interest in, in Jewish community. And he said he had the same idea. So I think there's a really good book on Jewish sports. So we sort of worked on it for about uh, six to eight months, come with the premise and then sort of put it together. And was there a particular reason it was now that you came to the idea or did just, it, nothing prompted it, no particular incident? No, just there was time to do it and, uh, you know, we probably three years from the first coffee that we had to, to the book uh, coming out. So, no, it was just a, it was a time to do it because, you know, I had a bit of time and he had a bit of time. We sort of He was between projects a little bit. So the timing is just coincidental, really. Right. In in the doing of this book, was there one person in particular that you just you thought, I have to speak to that person? Uh, not really. There's a few people that we wanted to get. I mean, interesting for, for a non-football side of things, our community has always been obsessed by... Um, Michael Klinger and thinking that he's been really harshly treated by the Australian selectors, but Michael had never come out and said as much because he's a very quiet, sort of unassuming sort of guy. So it was really good for us to prosecute the case as to why he should have been picked for Australia a lot earlier than he was and to get it in his words as well. So saying, yeah, I probably was a bit harshly done by the selectors at some stage. So that was really important. The other one was, I mean, guys like Frank Lowy, uh, who, whose contribution to soccer has been immense and he's a very busy man, very hard to pin down. But once we were able to get to his media people about the book, he, you know, he really generously gave his time and to talk about some of his experiences. I mean, this is a Jewish businessman, uh, very, you know, and a very you know, proud supporter of Israel going into these Arab countries that don't usually even let Jews in and to, to, no. you know, to work on the case for football in Australia and to get Australia into the Asian competition and to try and, and come up with a, a World Cup here as well. So there are a couple of stories that I really want to get into the book. Speaking of Jewish businessmen, there were a couple of names that came up across here who were directly involved in reinvigorating um, some AFL clubs, David Morgan and Joseph Gutnick. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about those stories? Yeah, well, that's the chapter I wrote. David and I worked in 1997 when the Bulldogs came from the clouds. David and I started working on a book. We were going to do a book at the end of that season, if they somehow miraculously won the premiership. Um, so in the end, they didn't. But this is sort of 20 years on, we finally got that into into writing. But it was just an f- amazing year. They're both, I mean, David Swag was a long-time Bulldog supporter and, and the club turned to him when they ran out of options. Joseph Kutnick, an Orthodox rabbi who hardly ever been to a game of football, was the most unlikely saviour for the Melbourne Football Club. But in the, in, even in the late 90s, if, if you had a fat checkbook, that counted for plenty in footy. And, that, and basically on the promise of injecting some money into Melbourne when they look like they might have to merge with Hawthorne, that elevated them to the presidency. So While we're on football, there's a sizable section here on Choco Williams, so I have to ask about that. It's the ex-coach at Richmond. I'm really interested. Can you tell me a bit about that chapter? 
So, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to get the gig uh, from Ash and Dash to write about Choco's season coaching in 2017, coaching Ajax, which is a, a Jewish footy club that plays in Melbourne's amateur competition. And I'm a very passionate sort of grassroots footy follower and supporter and and one of my great passions in life is grassroots footy and I've got a Jewish connection as well in that my um, grandparents on my mum's side are Holocaust survivors so Mm. I'd I'd always been fascinated by the Ajax footy club and, and wondering what Jewish footy culture at the grassroots level was like and it was a lot of fun getting involved and going to watch Choco coach the club and just firstly in terms of the club's culture and going to see that it Basically, it's like any other grassroots footy club. There's all the same sort of wise-cracking humour and fun and games that go on and old fellas at the bar and and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. And they turned to Choco really sort of they, – they took a punt. The club took a punt on could it lure such a high-profile coach, you know, Port Adelaide's 2004 premiership coach. He had just uh, left Richmond where he'd been an assistant coach for a number of years and – through a sort of pitching him a broad plan to be involved in Jewish sport, not just footy, they got him to coach the club. And it was really fascinating to watch Choco back at grassroots level. Sport in this country is religion, really. <laughs> How has faith played a part in that for the Jewish community? Because you see people like Basha Hooley who really fly the flag for his religion. I just wanted to find out from a Jewish perspective, how does that kind of interplay work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's... There's the religious side of it, there's the cultural side of it. I mean, for a long time, I mean, the Jewish community is largely a community of immigrants, and particularly sort of in the 20s and 30s a lot came out from Europe, really invigorated the community. And uh, it's very much a work ethic. You know, we don't have time for sport. Sport is not for us. We're here to... And it's like the same immigrant families going through it now. You know, we're here, we've got to get jobs, we've got to get on, build ourselves a new life here. Sport can wait. So that's but that was the thinking for a long time. In terms of religion, I mean, the, the barrier for, you know, for Orthodox Jews has been... They can't play sport on the Sabbath, which is Friday sunset till Saturday sunset. And for a long time, grassroots sport and even elite sport, if you couldn't play on a Saturday, you couldn't play. So it was a barrier initially. For a lot of the non-Orthodox Jews, it hasn't been an issue that you know, they'll play on a Saturday, but to, like the Ajax Footy Club being an example. But there's been that sort of, uh, we can't really devote ourselves to top-level sport because we won't be able to play it at the top level anyway because of our religious uh, belief. So that's been an issue for some, um, not so much anymore, but... Yeah, it was a hindrance for a while. It was perceived to be a bit of a challenge for Ian Sinman during the in the '66 Grand Final. Could you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, the story was, and it ended up being an apocryphal story that he sought permission from a rabbi to play because the '66 Grand Final was on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which is the most solemn, holy day of the year for Jews, and a day that even most non-observant Jews observe in a lot of ways. So he had this clash, but. Uh, supposed clash. It was Michael Schilberger, a TV reporter, who first reported it the, the week before. But Sinman, it was a bit of a decision for him to play, but in the end he said, look, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a non-observant Jew. I've played every other game. This is the club's first grand final or first chance to win a premiership, so I'm going to play. But it's more the effect on his family. There were, you know, He had cousins and uncles who were very close to him who didn't go to the game. And a lot of Jewish St Kilda supporters didn't go to the game thinking, well, I'll be there the next time they win. Well, you know, the... <laughs> Three years mm, later, that still, hasn't still hasn't happened. So that was a, b- a big issue for the community. And you know, di- even now, people sort of, did you go to the game? That's still a discussion Jewish and Kilda supporters of that age have. How interesting. So if there's one message to take out of this collection, um, Adam, what would you say that is? Well, for, for me, I suppose the broader message Ashley has covered in that there's there's a great story to tell in terms of Jewish involvement in sport. And for me, particularly doing the chapter that I did, I really like the quirks that people's cultural backgrounds throw up when they when they're playing sport or the the quirks that their culture uh, brings to their daily life for instance when you have Choco Williams come to Ajax a man of strong faith himself he's a he's a catholic but he hadn't had much to do with the Jewish community or pretty much anything to do with the Jewish community before. He comes into Ajax, the first thing he says, right, the senior footy players are going to have a team meeting every Friday night. Well, no, they're not. (laughs) Friday nights in Jewish families are are sacrosanct, as Ashley mentioned before. So that's not going to happen. So you see this funny uh, meeting of cultural realities versus what a sporting coach wants to do and how you find a way through that and how, and I suppose it's the same as the Ian Sinman story. It's that we've, we've all got our culture that we like to, to bring to the table and our things that, that we like to use to govern our lives. Then it meets sport and, and the ability to find a way like the Jewish community has found a way through 
all of those little speed humps they've had to get over to be involved in sport and to be particularly successful in it. And it works the other way yeah. as well. I mean, supporters embrace the Jewish community. And you, it doesn't get a mention in the book, but Ajax had to forfeit a grand final once because it was played on a Jewish holiday. Wow. And the amateurs wouldn't budge. 20 years later, the, the start of the season, the fixture notice goes out to the club saying, if the grand final falls on this day and Ajax is playing, will we delay the game by a week? So that's, again, Ajax has helped, I think, the Jewish community has helped the wider community understand their culture and that sport should be for everybody. And I think other mm. communities have embraced that as well. That's a great message. And, yeah, the, the idea too that sport is part of the human condition, isn't it? And so we are all humans. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great. And I highly recommend the book, People of the Boot, The Triumphs and Tragedy of Australian Jews in Sport by Ashley Brown and Dash Lawrence. Okay, final business, people. Um, Kate, I couldn't help but watch the games and in my head was like, boy, oh, 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 You launched the sound effects uh, campaign last week on the podcast. How's it coming along? Well, I mean, the main disappointment for me is that Waleed and all of those others have been invited to AFL House, and I haven't yet. So if you're listening, AFL, um, I'm I'm prepared to come in and talk about this. But, yeah, I mentioned that I thought we needed to have sound effects accompanying umpiring decisions, particularly for those who are at the ground and and don't quite know what decision's been made. And we had a lot of people contact us with some ideas, um, messages, emails, etc. But I just wanted to pick up on three that I loved. (laughs) So Julia Chiera, who's a friend of the pod, she suggested that for a push in the back, it should be accompanied by the sound of ten, ten pins being knocked over. Nice. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Michael, he tweeted us and said that he suggested that uh, for when you run too far, it should be accompanied by a cartoon running sound effect. <laughs> Like Flintstones. Flintstones in the car. Yeah. yeah. And last week, I think someone, I can't remember who it was, um, said that they wanted to know what an unrealistic attempt should be. Lucy, that was you. And so Georgina did uh, tweet us and she said that for an unrealistic attempt at a mark, it should be accompanied by a little clip from the castle that says, tell him or tell her he's dreaming. <laughs> nice. That would be so well, helpful. Like I would love that. Uh, final business, Nicole? Yeah, there's um, an art exhibition in Mildura that's about to start. It runs till September 22nd called The Art of Football. And it's the curator is Bob Atba and the venue's Gallery F for anyone who's in, the, in that region. And basically it's just artworks with an emphasis on its ties with um, the Indigenous game and uh, with football and it's in connection with Mangrook. So, you know, if you're in the area... Check it out. Um, Jim Pavlidis, who also follows us on Instagram, who's an amazing artist, he's got an exhibition opening on the 13th of September as well. And his lithographs and etchings and mixed media prints are all about footy as well. So it's mm. worthwhile getting along to. Uh, Lucy, did you have any final business or did you want to do a shout out to Lucy too? <laughs> <laughs> to the to the greatest Lucy we know. Lucy Watto sitting out in our... Um, Outside the studio, Lucy won her first grand final. Yay! Yay for the muggers on the weekend. Amazing, Congratulations. Right? So, so excited for her. Through rain, hail, thunderstorm, <laughs> was it the whole works burger? Congratulations, Lucy. We're so proud of you and we're so thrilled. I feel like we won a grand final. Yeah. yeah. We, well, we did really, didn't and we? And it really was probably the worst weather Yes. So, yeah, it was terrible. Am I the only person who thinks when it hails that I think I want to call it David Hale? Mm. Mm. No, no, no. It's just me or? No, No, we do that. Okay, absolutely. Um, I just also wanted to say we got the most unbelievable response to last week's podcast. Mm. Um, There was two people who didn't quite like what we did with the article and we completely take that on board. There was a lot of people who really enjoyed it and I think um, we were so out on a limb so we're glad that you enjoyed it um and then um off the back of that a few of you went and did itunes reviews for us now we don't really harp on about itunes reviews too much because we probably should yeah we probably should if you like this um kind of footy chat um and you would like this kind of footy chat to rise above the ranks of other types of footy <laughs> chat podcasts that are many and not so varied. Um, you can you have the power to do that to yeah. show people what the sanctum means to you by going to iTunes and making putting in a review. That would be super helpful. It's a non payment way of love letters to us, mm. I suppose, and so. it helps the live ladder. 
It really helps the live yeah. ladder. Yeah, it really Which does. means it it means that other people find it easier to find us. Yes. That's exactly what it does. <gasps> okay. Are we all done? No well more done. bets, no more business? Oh, I just have to say this, that this morning I noticed on the app that I have on my phone, the footy app, that they've added a live ladder and my heart sunk when I saw it because I just know that I will spend the whole weekend glued to it. Yeah. You and I just half a million other people. I told you I the stats on how many people's Crazy. teams. <laughs> That's all right. So it's all right. It won't work. Everyone will be on it. Everyone will be on it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Good luck this weekend, Happy people. Birthday, enjoy. Happy oh, birthday, thanks. Girlfriend. Enjoy. Enjoy the last round. Ooh. There's farewell your players. There's going to be people that retire. They'll be cheering off. There'll be so many chairs. Mm. Make sure they're safe chairs. Make mm. sure you get two. If you're going to go with a Ruckman, get two Ruckman. Mm. Don't yes. get a Ruck don't and get, a Rover. Don't get a small don't forward. Get, no, 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 no. Exactly. We don't want to see Dalhouse <laughs> and Bontempelli. Caleb, Daniel I'm and to, yeah, exactly. Jordan exactly. Um, Okay. Have a great weekend and I hope your team wins unless they're playing our team. Okay, bye. Go Go Woody. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.